Well, good morning. So it's a privilege to be able to preach the Word of God. And although a little unusual for someone to become a member and then be preaching a Sunday after that, I am uh, extremely thankful for the opportunity and excited and humbled to be in front of you this morning. Me and Lester are looking forward to be able to get to know you better and uh, be able to be used by God to reach out to our community here in Suffolk. Let me give you a quick condensed version of who I am and why I'm here, since a lot of you don't know me very well. Um, as Pastor Edgel mentioned earlier, I was born and raised in the country of Venezuela. And in my teen years, we moved to the United States because God had placed a burden in my parents' heart to serve him in full-time ministry. So they abandoned a relatively successful life in the business world and um, moved here to the States to get trained in Bible college. I was personally saved at the age of seven. At 17, I went to Appalachian Bible College in West Virginia where God allowed me to grow and mature spiritually and where I uh, met and fought for my spouse. And as you can see, I was victorious. Um, And we were married at age, uh, when I was 24, Uh, We celebrated this last May, four years of marriage by the grace of God, and it's been wonderful uh, to um, just work alongside and get to know uh, Leslie. And uh, a year after we got married, God opened up a door for us to move to the area of Virginia Beach uh, for me to go to Virginia Beach Theological Seminary, where I am enrolled right now working on my Master's in Divinity. And seminary has been phenomenal. It's been a great experience. Uh, And it has been challenging in so many different levels, emotionally, uh, spiritually, academically, physically. Um, But nevertheless, I would say that the hardest experience that I have personally gone through was moving to the States in my teen years. Um, I could spend a lot of time talking about that first year here in the U.S., but let's just say this. It is hard for a teenager to go through big changes. It can, take, it can take a toll on you. Things like friends, school, culture, climate, environment, food, language, just to mention a few things. It's hard to be plugged out of a nation and to be placed in another nation as a foreigner as an alien, as someone that doesn't belong. So so let me ask you this morning, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like a minority, like an outcast? Let me put, put it this way, do you know that you should feel to an extent that way? Do you realize that due to the fact that you are a child of God, you should feel uncomfortable in this earth. I've named the sermon this morning, A Christian Nation, A Community of God's People. So I'm gonna invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter two. 1 Peter chapter two. Once you get there, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. 
and we'll begin at verse 9. 1 Peter 2, starting on verse 9. The Word of God says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your word and we thank you for the marvelous work that you've done in our lives through your son, Jesus Christ. Right now, we just ask you to make our hearts and minds sensitive to the message that you have for us this morning. And I pray that you'll speak to us and that you'll continue to transform us by renewing our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray all these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. This passage is filled with wonderful truths concerning what it means to be a part of God's people. <clears throat> and back in verse 9, Peter describes the recipients of this letter in a couple different ways. If you look back at, at this verse, he, he uses four descriptions. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. This description can be summarized to my first point that I want to bring to you this morning, and that is that God's people have a divinely given identity. God's people have a divinely given identity. There are many interesting words and theological concepts that are including in this description. However, in order to appreciate these better, it is helpful for us to step back a little bit and try to find out about the original audience. Who is the you in verse 9? Why is Peter writing to them? Why is it important for these people to understand their new identity in Christ? So let me give you a little bit of historical background here. We find out who these people are in the first, very first verse of the letter. First Peter chapter 1, you can turn there, you can just listen. Peter opens up like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to... And then pay attention to these terms that he uses to the, refer to the original recipients of the letter. If you have an ESV Bible, you will see that it says, to those who are elect exiles. And because of the nature of these Greek words, you can actually translate the terms a couple of different ways. If you have like a net Bible, for example, you would see that they translated these Greek terms as to those temporarily residing abroad who are chosen. The NASB says, to those who reside as aliens who are chosen. And my personal favorite, the Holman um, Standard Bible says, to those temporary residents chosen. I know all about being a temporary resident since that was my status for many years here in the United States. 
So Peter is writing to these temporary residents, to these exiles that are spread across the Roman provinces. And he's writing them in a particularly interesting period of time because Christians are being persecuted right now for their faith. We'll learn about this at the end of the letter. In chapter 5, Peter says to his recipients, resist him, talking about the devil. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So this was this wasn't something that was uniquely happening to these people. All the Christians across the Roman Empire were being persecuted for their faith. And one of the reasons why this was taking place is because of a, another religious group. Um, they're called the Imperial Cult. This is a fast-growing religious group that would take the lingo uh, that we're familiar with when it comes to Christian terms such as Lord, Son of God, Savior of the world, and who would take those terms and would apply it to Caesar. So the emperor considered himself a deity, and he expected his subjects to be completely loyal and even worship him. In the 21st century, we understand to a degree persecution, to a degree. But try to put yourself in the position of these people in the first couple centuries, who when they pledged their allegiance to the Lord Jesus, were either sent to the lions at the Colosseum, they were burnt alive, they were crucified, and if they were lucky, they had a quick death by being beheaded. These are dark times for these people. So Peter writes them, and Peter writes them to encourage them. He accomplishes this by pointing to Christ, who is their hope, and reminding them of a couple things. Who they are, and what they should expect because of who they are. This helps us land right back on the text that I'm preaching through this morning. One of the descriptions about the identity of these people is that they are a chosen race. So look back at verse 9. Look back at verse 9 with me. Chapter 2, verse 9. You're a chosen race. It's interesting when you take the whole letter of Peter and just read it without stop, without paying attention to the chapters or anything like that. Because you notice that Peter spends a lot of time talking about salvation in the first couple of chapters. And he talks about a few different individuals that are related to this salvation in one way or another. We can call them the, the good guys. He talks about, well, the recipients of the letter. He talks about the Trinity. He talks about God the Father. He talks about Christ and his resurrection and his uh, upcoming return in the future. He talks about the Spirit of Christ in chapter 1, which is probably a reference to the Holy Spirit. He talks about the Old Testament prophets and how they looked into the Scriptures and wondered about the suffering of the upcoming Messiah. And he even talks about angels. Angels are curious about the salvation that we have received and they haven't. But once you get to chapter 2, Peter introduces a new group of people. Peter introduces those who do not believe. So look back a couple verses to verse 7 in chapter 2. This is where the new group comes in. So the honor is for you who believe, and then here's the other group, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, 
and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So we have a group of people here that believe in this stone, right? In the stone that God had laid on Zion. But we also have another group that doesn't believe in this stone, but rejects it. Peter actually draws from a couple different prophecies in the Old Testament, one from Isaiah and one from the psalmist. And he is writing uh, these two prophecies to show his readers that their persecution is not unexpected. It was prophesied in the past that there would be a group of people that would be opposed to God's precious stone, right? And this actually transforms into a stark contrast between the two groups. Notice the words that Peter uses. This group that rejects are offended. They disobey the word. And if you look at the end of verse 8, they stumble. But not you. You are what? You're a chosen generation. That's who you are. That's who we are in Christ. Part of being a God's people is part of being a chosen race. The second description that we see in this passage is that of a royal priesthood. The neat but also kind of scandalous thing about this description is the fact that a lot of these phrases were uniquely used of the nation of Israel, right? And they took great pride in this. Uh, if you remember in the Old Testament, um, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and he saw this whole incident with the golden calf, he threw the tablets on the ground because he was so upset. So God had to uh, have him come back to Mount Sinai to get a second copy of the law. After which, he stood in front of the nation, and he read, he read the book of the covenant. Then he sacrificed animals and took a portion of the blood and sprinkled it on the altar and took another portion of the blood and sprinkled them on the nation, on the people, to separate them, to consecrate them as a nation of priests. This is kind of a gross imagery, but this is a very vivid imagery that I want you to keep in mind as we consider the opening of 1 Peter. We're back on the New Testament now, and in, in verse 2, Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, we read that verse, to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. You see the connection here between the two covenants? On the one side, the nation of Israel was sprinkled with the blood of animals, but on this other side, Christians are sprinkled with the blood of the ultimate sacrifice and set apart as a nation of priests as well. We are a chosen generation, and we are a royal priesthood. The third description that we see here is that of a holy nation. And well, holiness is a concept that we grew up hearing about in church, if you're being a Christian for a lot of your life. This is one of those attributes that's intricately connected to the attributes of God, His essence. You've heard of the verses, you know, you are holy, holy, holy. You've heard of the famous verse as well, be holy for I am holy. That's actually quoted from the Old Testament in 1 Peter, verse 6. We know that as Christians we're supposed to be distinct, morally pure, separate, different. So 
So I don't think that's the concept that we have a hard time understanding. I think that the concept that we have a hard time understanding is that of being a nation. Back in 2007, when my parents graduated from Bible college, they started raising support through Baptist Men Missions to become national missionaries in Venezuela. And at one of the conferences there at uh, Baptist Med, I remember one of the speakers talking about missionary kids, and he referred to them with this term, children of the third culture. As a missionary kid himself, the speaker understood that missionary kids don't normally fully belong to either the culture where they're serving or the culture where they came from. Um, you understand this if you've been a foreigner yourself at some point. I've, I was born and raised in Venezuela, like I mentioned before, and I, I look Venezuelan and I sound Venezuelan, but I don't understand the culture as well as someone like my parents do, for example. Uh, I've lived here in the United States for over 14 years of my life, and I went to high school here, college, seminary. My best friends are American. My wife is American. Uh, my son will be American. But when I speak, you can tell that I'm not American. And, and my point is this. I know what it's like to be a stranger in a strange land. And I think the Israelites from the Exodus know what it's like to be a stranger in a strange land. But I feel like many times God's people have grown complacent and too comfortable in their temporary residence. This might sound a little bit radical for some of you, but you are a Christian before you're an American. I am a Christian before I am a Venezuelan. Because at the moment that God reached down from heaven and removed the blinders so that we saw our pitiful state in our sin and were able to, to respond in faith towards the gospel, you know, skin color, social, cultural norms that we're used to, whatever morality was taught to you, anything that you thought defined who you were became secondary. There's a nation, there's a nation that is sprinkled with Christ's blood, set apart, a nation that's unrestrained by political borders and that has a direct line of communication to the God of the universe. But that nation doesn't wear a flag, that nation wears Christ. We are a holy nation. The last one, a people for his own possession, is another phrase that is used to talk about our identity. I believe this phrase is a summary statement of the last three that we mentioned. And as the commentator states, God has acquired the people of Israel by taking them from the Egyptian house of bondage. In the same manner, he has acquired the church of the New Testament by the blood of his son. You know, in contrast to other world systems, such as Darwinian evolution, for example, that's pervasive in the secular education world, where they teach you that man is just an evolved animal and he's probably only a little bit more valuable than you know, a cockroach or whatever. 
Biblical Christianity teaches that you have inherent value because you were created in the image of God. But not only that, this passage teaches us that you are precious in Christ. And that's because you weren't purchased or ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the blood of his son. That's what it means to be God's possession, God's own possession. So we have four phrases that we have looked at that make up the fact that God has given his people an identity. Very quickly, let's make this practical by answering the question, why? Why God? Why have you decided to give us this new identity? Why have you make us, made us recipients of, of great blessings such as this? Well, well, look at the end of verse 9 with me. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. My second point this morning is that God's people have a divinely given purpose. The why question is easy to answer. It's for God's glory. God has done all these things that he might be glorified through the proclamation of what he has done through and for an undeserving people. As another commentary states it, Israel's priesthood was such that they were to mirror the nation's to the nations, the glory of Yahweh, so that all nations will see that no God rivals the Lord. Now, God's kingdom of priests consists of the church of Jesus Christ. It too is to mediate God's blessings to the nations as it proclaims the Gospels. So let me pause here and try to give you a word of application. Churches sometimes get a little caught up with terms such as... Uh, full-time or part-time ministry. People get caught up with whether or not someone speaks eloquently or is charismatic to attract people or has a particular gift. But this is telling you that God saved you for you to proclaim him. You don't have to be the next Martin Luther or Spurgeon or Billy Graham. Because I stand before you today convinced that I want to spend my life for Christ because at one point my parents proclaimed God's excellencies when they stepped away from what they knew. So let me challenge you. Parents, proclaim God's excellencies to your children. Husbands, proclaim God's excellencies to your wife. Young people, don't be ashamed. Proclaim what God has done for you. Our divine given purpose is to proclaim Christ. So moving quickly, we have a divine given identity. We have a divine given purpose. And last of all, God's people are expected to live according to God's divine standards. 
Let's look at verse 11 together. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. These two terms come back again, sojourner, exile, and they have a fresh, more deep, more intensified meaning to the recipients of the letter because these guys aren't just geographically spread out throughout the Roman Empire. They have just now been reminded as well that they should not feel at home in this system. They should not feel at home in, in this life. This is just a stop before stepping into glory where our true home is. So Peter grabs this new heavenly citizenship and he urges the recipients of this letter to do a couple things. Abstain from the passions of the flesh because those things described you in your times of ignorance. That's not who you are anymore. And the second thing we can find in verse 12. Look back down at verse 12 with me. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are to act honorably in the midst of the unsaved. Peter now uses this word Gentile as a general term to refer to those who are not part of the household of faith. And he also says when. I don't know if you noticed that, which implies that this will take place. People will speak evil of you. You will be persecuted. You will be hated. You will, you will be rejected. Remember Jesus' words. A servant is not above his master. If they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So this will take place if you are truly a child of God. In the midst of that persecution, we are to do what? Do good deeds. Do good works. Maybe Peter was thinking of his own time with Christ. When he was teaching him, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We can find that in the Gospels. Now, when it comes to this particular concept, the day of visitation, there's a, a couple of things that this could mean, uh, theologically speaking. But I don't want you to get caught up with that. I want you to, to follow Peter's main point, which I think is clear enough. You are God's people, so act like it. Right? Let me give you another application. I really want you to be thinking of these categories. I want you to be thinking about the fact that representing your family name, representing your school, your work, your nation is not a priority anymore because you represent God. If you're his child, you're representing him. And I want you to take that particular concept and think about your community. Think about Suffolk. Think about the different places where you interact. Pray that God will help people see your good works and glorify him. So in closing, let me just do a quick recap of what I've been talking about this morning. Even though we're over 2,000 years removed from this particular message, God's Christian nation doesn't only transcend culture, but it transcends time as well. So church, rejoice and be encouraged that you've been given a divine identity. Church, keep reminding yourself 
that you've been given a divine purpose to proclaim God's excellencies. Church, you're expected to live according to God's divine standards. So abstain from the passions of the flesh and act honorably amongst the unsaved.